welcome to this talk from Emmaus Road, a church with congregations in Guildford and Woking in the UK. To find out more about who we are and what we're up to, please visit us online at EmmausRoad.com. Hey God, I thank you for Stephen. I thank you for the grace that is on his life. And uh, we just pray for him this morning as he shares here and then shoots to Guildford. Pray that you bless him mightily. Amen. Amen. Thank you very much. Super. Now, two things Josh didn't do when he um, introduced me was one that he didn't explain this crazy accent. So I usually just start by saying, this is what you sound like if you are a Canadian that's lived in England. Yeah, for 22 years. Jill, you will sound like me one day. Um, and in fact, one of the first places I lived when I moved to England was Guildford. So just down the road. So it's really nice to be back in, in kind of the area which I first introduced myself to England. Um, uh, what else do you need to know about me? Oh, the other thing about me is that I now live in West Sussex near wildfires. So please do come. I actually live, my church is the church on the, basically the parish church for the wildfires, for the Whiston estate where it all happens. And so our little church is, at the moment, we're just a little village Anglican church, which is experiencing 15,000 spirit-filled Christians showing up every summer for a big church day out, wildfires and the David's Tent Festivals all happen there. And our little church is having a revival. It's really brilliant. So, so do come. Do come and enjoy the land that we are part of and, uh, and, and come to our church. So greetings from the church in Ashington, West Sussex. I bring you greetings, right? Um, so I have been, there's a few familiar faces here I recognize. Some people have been, have been following me, tracking me through. I see I'm waving to some of them here. They've been following me through the weekend. So I'm slightly speaking to two audiences. One is the people who have been with me on this journey of talking about um, basically political theology. Like what did it feel like politically to be around Jesus? What did it feel like on a social active kind of way. What did it feel like to be politically around Jesus? But I'm also aware that not everybody in this room has been with me for the last Friday night and Saturday. So I'm going to briefly explain why the, today's title is Benign Anarchy. So I'm a political theologian, which means that I spend a lot of my time thinking about how Christians relate to their states or their empires or their... I mean, if you think about it, like any... Any time humans get together to collectively agree about their vision for society, that's political. So it's not every four years you vote for the blue team so the red team doesn't win, or you vote for the red team so the blue team doesn't win. That is like the least important aspect of politics. And what we really mean when we're political theologians is like, how do Christians, what is our agreed vision for society? How do we use our power? Right now, we are a political group. We are collectively agreed to be here on a Sunday morning. Um, how do we use the power that we have? How do we give it away? What's our, what's our goal in life? And then how do we negotiate that space with other people and other agreed visions for society, right? So long story short, I, I, I began my life and my academic life being a, looking at modern-day states and nations and how, what's a Christian relationship to patriotism and nationalism and all that stuff. And then I started doing church history because I'm interested in well, how did earlier Christians think. 
about that, these things. And then as you do church history, you keep going back and back and you end up at the New Testament. Right? So, because you're thinking, well, how did the people who knew Jesus, or who knew the people who knew Jesus, how did they think they related to their to the culture they were born into, to the nation that they were a part of, to the empire that they were under. How did they think that they related to these things? So this is why I say I'm doing political theology. And um, people always ask me, oh, well, should Christians, what's the, what is a Christian politics then? Is it conservative? Is it liberal? Is it progressive? Is it socialist? Is it capitalist? And, you know, we have this spectrum, don't we? And, and I always say, to be really honest... The most accurate, not that it's really accurate, but the most accurate political label for Christians is anarchy. And I don't mean by that throwing a brick through a bank window or beating up a policeman or whatever that we might, you know, we have a popular vision of what we think an anarchist is. But if from a political science point of view, the anarchist is, the, is a way to describe, it doesn't mean chaos, it's a way to describe what happens when people organize themselves in such a way as to give away their power rather than build it up. Um, if you think about a hierarchy, the word archi means, is archon means power in Greek, and a hierarchy is, is our way of describing the top-down vision. You know, we've got prime ministers and ministers and local councillors and that idea. It's a perfectly valid way of organizing a society. But the anarchists are the ones who, who are trying to disperse power rather than collect it into one place. Anarchy as opposed to hierarchy. Anyway. And the reason why you say that about Christianity is that the Holy Spirit blows where he will. And that the early Christians had this idea that just identifying a set normal way of doing things wasn't always the reason to keep doing it. Just because you've found yourself in a world in which this is the way we organize ourselves, I was born into this particular ethnic group and I have this color skin or I speak with this type of accent, therefore it means this is how our life is now. The, Christ, the early Christians were like, well, the Holy Spirit seems to be empowering all sorts of different types of people that don't look like our normal structures of power. Does this make sense? Which is why, if people ask me, well, how do, what's a Christian politics? I say, well, it's kind of anarchy. Because we think the Holy Spirit is going to move where he will, regardless of any power structures we've built, or any inherited traditions we have. Or what the world might say, these are the important people, and the Holy Spirit says, that's an important person, right? And, uh, but then I call it benign anarchy because it's goodness at work in the world. The Holy Spirit is a force for goodness in the world, not a force for angry destruction. And I want to look at some of where the, how this works. Um, the other thing to point out before we talk about, get your Bibles open, by the way, to Mark 5. The other thing we're going to, before we talk about the story of the healing of the, the woman bleeding for 12 years and the raising of Jairus' daughter, we're going to look at in Mark 5, as an example of benign anarchy. But the other thing to point out is that um, for the early Christians, the word faith meant something. It felt a bit different to hear the word faith than we might hear it today. 
So today, when you hear the word belief or faith, we tend to think, don't we, Christians, we tend to think it's like a mental assent, perhaps to a series of propositions. Maybe we think Jesus is asking us to believe six impossible things before breakfast. Um, we might think that faith is the opposite of the opposite of faith is doubt, perhaps. So if only I could work up enough energy, positive thinking, if I don't allow any doubt to creep into my mind, then I have faith. Or maybe we think it's a bit like wish fulfillment or the power of positive thinking. It's like if I if I wish hard enough, I'll get the universe will give me what it is that I'm in visualizing in my mind, or something like that. Like we have this. Belief and faith has that kind of ring to it sometimes. And Christians, we think this all the time. But the word in the New Testament, when Jesus walked around, he loves faith. He's always like, he's asking people to have faith in me or believe in me. He says that all the time. And it's interesting that Josh opened today by talking about follow me, right? Because in fact, those are synonymous. So Jesus, when he says follow me, that's the same as saying believe in me or have faith in me. And the word is pistos, which is, feels more like if somebody says, have pistos towards me, it doesn't feel like saying, believe six impossible things before breakfast. It feels like hearing somebody say, be patriotic to me. Have allegiance to me. Follow me. Another way of thinking of it is be seen to be with me. Don't be, don't be ashamed to be with me. It has a, the association is being with the person. And it's really similar. I mean, a, a good example would be, you know, if, if Jill there in the back raised her fist and said, actually, do it, Jill. Raise your, raise your fist and say, everyone who follows me is going to get ice cream. <laughs> See? So Jill marches up and she walks out. And, and there's a stunned silence. And then some people follow her. And the rest of us would sit there going, well, I guess they believed Jill, right? And that's the feeling that when Jesus says, believe in me, that's what it feels like. It feels like people saying, I'm going to be with that guy. I'm going to follow him. I don't understand how he's going to give us all ice cream, but he said he would, so I'm going to be with him, okay? So open up your Bibles to Mark 5. Now, I don't have time to read the whole thing, but this is the story of, it starts at Mark 5, 21 to the end of the chapter. And it, this is the story of, uh, of the, 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 the woman with bleeding and of Jairus' daughter. So I'm just going to talk us through it, but I would like you to, to have a look. I'm going to try and go through the, the steps. Remember, an example of benign anarchies, powers, power structures being upended and dispersed, and as an example of, of faith. So what's the story? The story is Jesus um, Jesus is, is with a crowd of people. The crowd of people are thronging around Jesus, all right? That's how we open. And by the way, the crowd is the great unwashed. This cr the word used to describe this crowd is the word you would use to describe the kind of savage illiterate. They're not just normal crowd of people. They're like they're unclean, they're wild, they're unruly, they're the lowest of the low, basically. The Pharisees said if you hang out with this type of person, it's called an oklos, if you hang out with the oklos, you are unclean because they're so illiterate, they don't have the law. Because they don't have the law, they're unclean. And so it's significant that Jesus is associated with the oklos all the time. 
So people say, oh, when the, when the woman was bleeding, who we're going to talk about, when she touches Jesus' cloak, she made him unclean. Like, no, actually, he was unclean a long time before because the Oculus were crowding around him. Okay? So he's, the Oculus are there, and they're, 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 they're crowding around Jesus. And then what happens? Jairus, the ruler of a synagogue, comes to Jesus and says, my daughter is ill, right? So Jairus, the ruler of a synagogue, he's an elite. To be a ruler of a synagogue means you've already inherited quite a lot of wealth and privilege. You are not an oklos. The Daily Mail would call the oklos the uh, feral you know, feral children, feral sinkhole estate or something like that. It's that kind of idea. If you're a ruler of a synagogue, you are not part of the crowd. And Jarius says, come and heal my daughter. And think about, she's 12 years old, we're told. She's a virgin. She's a young girl. She's the daughter of an elite member of a, of a synagogue. Um, He's speaking for in this culture, you know, women need to have, young girls need to have men speak for them. And he's, he's, everything's going right. He's doing everything right. He's speaking for this young woman. She's the highest of the high, okay? It's, it's harder to get higher on the scale of purity than a 12-year-old daughter of a synagogue ruler, right? So then what happens? Jesus is on his way to heal the girl. Then what happens? You tell me. What happens? So the, a, a woman comes out with, who's been bleeding for 12 years. Um, remember, we had highest of the high. Now, do you know that on a scale of purity, here we go, and the scale of the, the, the Jewish purity laws was like, a man could talk to another Jewish man, a man could talk to a, Jew, a Jewish woman. A Jewish man could talk to a Gentile, talk to a Gentile woman, touch an animal, a dead animal, a menstruating woman. Okay? Menstruating women were more, would make you less, were more impure than a dead animal. So here comes an oclos menstruating woman. She is as low as you can imagine, the lowest of the low, okay? And she touches Jesus' cloak. And then she feels, he feels power come out of him, right? Anarchy, power came out and went into her. What does Jesus do? He stops. What is the first effect what happens, what is the first effect on Jairus' daughter? Because Jesus stopped. Somebody said it. Do you want to say it louder? She dies. The first thing Jesus does is he lets the little girl die. This is a political statement Jesus is making about who's important or his priorities. The little girl dies. And then the woman, he says, who touched me, right? Now, we've already met a Jesus. He can see into men's hearts. He never loses an argument. And he knows who touched him. This is not the point. 
This isn't, he's not being ignorant here. What's the point of him saying to the woman, uh, like, why would he do this? And sometimes people think, oh, he's humiliating her. How, why would Jesus humiliate her? He's not humiliating her. What is the result? What is the effect? Because he said, who touched me? What does she have to do? She has to come forward. She has to speak. She has to own her own actions, right? In that moment, Jesus has made human a someone who nobody thought was human. He's empowered a person who had no power at all. He gives her a voice. She's visible. And then what does he say to her? Do you know? Go on, shout it out. What does he say? It's on... It's uh, 534. But before even faith, what does he say to her? Daughter, your faith has healed you. Daughter, he puts his. She had no man to speak for her. He includes her in his, under his mantle. Right? That Jairus's daughter has Jairus to speak for her. She's the highest of the high. And Jesus finds this woman who's been totally abandoned by everybody. And he says, daughter, your willingness to be seen to be with me. He shows allegiance to her. And she shows allegiance to him. Daughter, your faith has healed you. She wasn't wishing, she didn't have a clear picture. It wasn't that, daughter, your, your, your ability to wish hard enough has healed you. That's not what it is. It's, daughter, your willingness to be seen to be with me, to be on my team. I'm, that's where life and health is. And he puts his allegiance to her and her allegiance to him. And it's an example of recreating a new form of community around Jesus. He's now the king, and the people around him are his citizens. And he's choosing to have people on his team who nobody else would want. And, this is, and, you know, and it's with me you have life in all its fullness, right? And then, just to prove that he also likes elite children, he goes and raises the girl, right? But the point of this story is that it's, it's a reimagining of who's important. And the, the, what we talk about is when we, when we say in the New Testament that every healing is never just a healing. And we're going to go after healing today, right? J Josh is going to talk about it. Healing is never just a healing. It's always, small p, political because it's always about reintegrating people back into relationship. It's about restoring people back into their life. It's about um, people being able to give and receive well, right? And the way, and, and, and in the New Testament, a healing is always about a kind of a humanizing of somebody that other people have said they're impure, they're, they're inhuman. And Jesus always looks at them and he says, your faith has healed you. Your allegiance to me, your willingness to be with me. And it doesn't, he's not, it's not your ability to speak about the Trinity without committing a heresy has, feel, has healed you. Right? 
It's not it. It's not about your intellect. Um, you think of the Apostle Peter, right? When Jesus is in the Gospel of John, Jesus is saying, the, I'm the bread of life. And even his own disciples at that point, they, they can't. They said, this is a hard teaching. Who can take this? And they leave. And then the disciples leave, and Jesus looks at Peter, who's still there, and he says, don't you want to leave as well? And Peter says, where else would I turn? You have the words of life, right? He's not saying, I understand you. He's saying, I, you're the best person I've ever met. I want to be with you. So I'm just going to stop there. I don't have like a sermon sermon. I just have these stories that I like to tell. But it's an example of the anarchy of the kingdom of God that says you think that you, you world, you think you have your power structures of who's important and who has power and who doesn't. But I'm here to tell you that it's totally different than what you expect. And I can give my power to anyone. And I can give a voice and a name to anyone. And they're on my team. And what is more, anybody can be on my team. 12-year-old girls, leading women, rulers of synagogues, and Oklos alike. I'm going to stop there. But bless you, and uh, I hope to see you again soon. Good. Stephen? Should we give Stephen a round of applause? Wow.